0: So we uh, are glad to be here this Sunday morning, and it's a privilege, it's all by the grace of God that we are here to worship Him. We are uh, doing another new chapter today, it's chapter 5, we're just breathing right through the book of Corinthians, aren't we? We went through 4 in uh, a couple of weeks, and here we are in 5. Uh, We're actually entering into a second division now. We have been spending so much time on the sin of actual pride of the Corinthians. That's what the problem is all the way through. Uh, Specifically, they were puffed up, uh, intellectual pride and their party spirit that they had, the divisions and strife. So we spent about four chapters on that. And Paul definitely was stressing humility. Uh, Humility is a key ingredient for Christians. Um, anywhere you look out throughout the Old Testament the New Testament, you will see that uh, spirit of humility that's always to be there. We're examples of servants. And uh, as we look at Paul and the other apostles and the leaders, they were to be the under the table-waiters, if we can say that. Now, this new section is dealing with the need for the church to use discipline. Church discipline is what Paul wanted them to do. There was a sin there that was horrible. It was immorality that was in the church. Right amongst them. And not only was there immorality, but the people just sat back and didn't do anything about it. They did nothing. And they acted like they just wanted to ignore it and just let it go on. So they took no action. And uh, this demanded that Paul... Threaten them with a rod of correction. And if you remember, we finished last week in chapter 4, in the very last verse, he says, What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod? Or in love and spirit of gentleness? As they had their pride, this leads right on into the next section with their arrogance and pride. And uh, how their whole attitude was... uh, There's an absolute disgrace that is in the church. And so Paul said, am I going to have to come with a rod of correction? How would you like to have the Apostle Paul come with a rod of correction on you? Coming to the church in the next week or so. So anyway, this is a horrendous sin that's happening. But what's more surprising is that the church wasn't doing anything about it. They just let it go. They tolerated the sin that was in their midst. And you know what? This can happen in any church. And to be honest with you, it is happening in all sorts of churches today. And many people know about it. There can be many who have gifts. They have the intellect like the Corinthians with the knowledge of Scripture. But these same people can be ignorant of the sin that is breeding underneath the floorboards and they're not inclined to take on corrective measures. And when that happens, you have all sorts of major problems. And church discipline is a topic that I don't think anybody really enjoys talking about. If I wasn't doing expository preaching, I would probably not be likely to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and do a topic on that today. I don't know of topical preaching that will really bring that forth. They could, but a preacher is not inclined to do that. Let's go on to higher doctrine. Or let's go into practical things. Well, this is really practical, but it is something that's not enjoyable. Not an enjoyable thing to do. So as we go through this today, go, oh my, Dennis is going to do chapter 5 today. I don't want to talk about this. <laughs> But discipline has to be carried on in the church. Most churches, I think today, do not do it. It's not a popular act of obedience. I've heard people say, oh, nobody does that anymore. Or, we're not going to do it because it just doesn't work anyway. But uh, sin is then swept aside and allowed to continue on and fester And get even worse. And when you talk about church discipline, it seems too radical. And it seems very unloving. Why would anybody who loves others want to bring this on? It's in the Word of God. The sad thing, in in our contemporary age, they have so totally discarded uh, church discipline, um, And I'm not so sure why, other than it just doesn't seem a cool thing to do. Maybe it's archaic, probably politically incorrect. Politically incorrect. It seems like it never identifies with the Word of God anyway, though. Have you noticed? Everything's upside down. Um, In the day and age that we live in, I think the church, the whole body of Christ, is more Corinthian, than it ever has been. This Corinthian church was bad enough, and we know the pagan background. I have to wonder if the church today here in America is even worse. And I hear about churches where there are homosexuals in the church who are leaders, and these come in certain cultural backgrounds, I have noticed. And it's like it's the thing to do. That's what the people do, so therefore they bring it forth. Well, it was in the culture in in Corinth to do certain things, and some even worse than what the average pagan did. That's what's surprising. Um, What does God's Word say about persistently sinning church members? What does the Bible say that we're to do? Well, it's found in this text here today. It gives us a clear method on how to discipline, how it is to be executed. And like I say, this would not be a favorite topic that I would like to present. But this is God's Word, so we go forth with it and we uh, exposit His Word. Let's uh, take chapter 5 and let's read the first five verses. And this is about the scandal. The scandal that's in the church. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife exclamation point there in my version and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you For indeed, as absent in body, but present in spirit, I have already judged as though I were present him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Wow, incredible that this was going on. Paul wanted to show them that this is a serious offense. They weren't taking it as a serious offense. It was not to be tolerated whatsoever in the church. Now, the funny thing is, it was common knowledge. It wasn't that just one or two people knew about it. Everybody knew about it. Not only in the church probably, but probably outside the church. It says in verse 1, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. It's actually reported. This is, is being told about. Everybody knows. News of this is just all over the place. Very well known. And the word for immorality there is that word porneia in the Greek of where we get our English word pornography which is running rampant today in the church and all over the world it's a billion dollar industry anyway it means any kind of illicit sexual activity in this case in Corinth at this particular time it was that a man was having sexual relations with his father's wife that doesn't necessarily mean his mother by blood Uh, but it's uh, one who was his father's wife, his mother-in-law. Incest. That's what's going on. Now, it wouldn't take too much to figure out that this is very, very serious. If we were to go back to the law, what did the law say about it? So we turn to Leviticus. Leviticus is filled with law. Leviticus 18, verse 7 and 8. Starting verse 6. None of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness. I am the Lord. Near of kin. The nakedness of your father or the nakedness of your mother you shall not uncover. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. The nakedness of your father's wife you shall not uncover. It is your father's nakedness. So we're talking about having a sexual relations. And... When you find out the penalty for this, you would see how serious it is. What is it? They should have been killed for that. In Deuteronomy 22.30, you'll see something along that line. This is serious, and we know that they were to be killed. Corinthian church member had done something, as it says here in verse 1 of chapter 5 of Corinthians, not even named among the Gentiles. Gentiles didn't even do it. The pagans didn't even do what he did. For there was a law. Cicero had established a law not to have incest, sexual relations within the family like that. And that's coming from not scriptural backing, although it's there. But they, they presented that forth. It's definitely not a good witness for the church, is it? That the Gentiles would say, yeah, you know what's going on in there? Well, verse 2 brings out something that's even more bothersome to Paul. He says, "And you're puffed up." Now, they tolerated this sin. You, know, you remember that we've already seen that they've been puffed up. They're puffed up with arrogance, puffed up with knowledge is really what the idea is there. The knowledge is there and they have their divisions and factions and they're puffed up with what they know and they're so for one reason, they're so busy with having all this knowledge and, and in their position, in uh, this particular group of people they're following, that they don't even really pay attention to it. And another thing, uh, if it be brought up amongst them, they would just kind of ignore it. Uh, they're, they're self-satisfied. They have a need of nothing, as far as they're concerned. They're not ashamed of this. And I have to wonder, where is the shame today of all that is going on? Not in just in the world. I'm talking about in the church. It's just terrible. Maybe they were thinking, "Hey, we have Christian liberty. We can do whatever we want. We're saved, and so therefore we can do whatever." I think the arrogance that they had blinded them from what the truth of God's word was, and so they start justifying this terrible, awful sin and start making it okay. And when a society is that way, the church is bound to go that way too because it's not that bad. Everybody is doing it. And once that thought starts happening, then all of a sudden what used to be black and white is now not only fuzzy, but it's okay. Don't worry about it. And now you have in mainline denominations pastors who are having sexual relations with other women, other men, women are lesbians, and they're leading churches. I mean, it's all out of order, out of control. Mainline denominations who used to be very solid and sound. That's actually going on. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. I don't think anybody's really surprised, you know, when we say all these things that are going on. It's, that's why I say sometimes we can lose our shame because of that, though. And he says in verse 3, after he tells them to walk in love, but fornication, and that's our word pornea there, in all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Now drop all the way down to verse 11. Don't let that even be named among you. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. So there is arrogance; it has. Uh, they must expose it. They weren't doing it, and they were not even mourning over this. Verse two, back to first chapter five. You are puffed up; have not rather mourned that who he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you? You haven't grieved over this. People should be ashamed. Uh, of sin and what happens if you don't grieve over the sin well then what happens is that you'll eventually have a spiritual disaster where there is not repentance in the church then what happens is sin increases it abounds more and spreads infection all throughout the church so we cannot tolerate sin Paul is saying And the responsibility not only falls on the leaders, but who else? Everybody. Everybody in the church is responsible for flagrant sin. Uh, The purity of the church is threatened. So everybody is there to help keep the church clean. What about the discipline of this sin? We've seen... It named, now we've seen that it was tolerated. Now Paul says that he judges them. It's obvious to him, they should be doing something about it. There's so much trouble in the churches of our land today because there's no rule, Um, they're not following the very word of God and the precepts that are taught clearly, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Matthew chapter 18. Other passages that uh, we'll be looking at. There's a scriptural obligation that we have to be obedient, even in things that we don't like to do. Uh, there's a need for church discipline. So he says, remove him from the church. Remove him. That's quite an incredible thought. Go, let's let's turn to our Matthew 18. We see the procedure. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell the pastor or somebody else about it, right? No. What is the rule? Always. You don't go to somebody else. You go to the person. I don't know how many times that I have told people before, don't go to me first. Go to the person. There are brother and sister in Christ. If there's a flagrant sin or something that is really explicit. Now, if we go and dissect every little sin, uh, all of us will be out of the church and there will be no such thing as a church. (laughs) Because we know we we all sin. But there are particular sins that will affect the church. And I think there are many that we know, but uh, sometimes we don't. But that's why it's good for the individuals to go and speak to each other. That's the rule. If you don't follow that, then you're breaking it. And uh, I, I think this is the way that, that it works, because Jesus said this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now, if he hears you, you gain your brother. He says, oh my, I am sorry. He's broken. He says, I, I am very sorry. I will not do that again. I repent. So if he listens to you, fantastic. It stops right there. It's done. That's, ri- that's ch- part of the church discipline. If you say it in a loving way with truth, then you might find out that, oh, what you've heard or saw really wasn't what you thought it was. You might find out, oh, that wasn't any kind of sin going on. I understand. If you delve into it a little bit more, if you talk to the individual and you see why and what is happening, you might be able to nip it in the bud and not get anybody else involved. And I'll tell you what, if, if the church is filled with the Holy Spirit, that's as far as it ought to ever go. It should never get any further. But unfortunately, somebody may not hear that, let's say if they continue in the sin. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Now you've taken a brother along with you and they've heard what has just been stated and they are offended. They don't like what you have just told them. They are mad and they continue on with their sin. What's the next step? Well, if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses them to hear the church, let him to be like a heathen and a tax collector. That's the third step. If they say, no way, you guys aren't telling me anything. I'm going to continue to do this. Okay, the church has addressed it. Now, what's the next step? They must be put out. Says, surely I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. There's where that's taking. How many times do people use prayer and say, anytime two or three together, then the Lord will hear you? Well, I know what they're saying when they say that, but the context is what? Church discipline. The Lord is always amongst us when we pray, where well, there's one Christian. When we pray, the Lord hears you. But when there's discipline and you have two or three witnesses, you have a whole body, then you're all in agreement. Christ is there. You're using the Word of God. He's right amongst you. What you're doing is right. Even though it doesn't seem right, you would not like to do this. It's not a favorable thing, but we know Scripture says this. Here's what we're all doing. So, there are the steps. And he, that's what Paul is really using whenever he addresses this. Now, um, what if that individual changes after the second step? Fantastic. You don't have to go third step. What if he changes after the third step? Receive him, bring him back in. He's that's the whole idea. That's where discipline is always to go. The goal is, is that they would be motivated to come back and that they would be broken, that they would be repentant. If they're not repentant, you can't bring them back in. though. Not just because time has passed, but it's because they still are in that sin, and they don't see that they're wrong in it, or will admit it. In Hebrews chapter 12, there is discipline that the Lord does on each of us individually. So there is such a thing as discipline. In uh, verse 6, For whom the Lord loves, He chastens and scourges every son whom He receives. All of us get disciplined by the Lord. But to keep one from being disciplined by the Lord in a stronger way, the church can protect that individual by bringing them right back to truth and repentance. And they don't have to go through a discipline. But the Lord disciplines us all in different ways. If he didn't, he wouldn't be our father. And we wouldn't be his son, daughters. It's a good thing when the Lord chastens us, isn't it? Because it means that he is our father. You show me a father who doesn't discipline his children and I'll show you uh, a catastrophe. What happens to that child? We know that they become spoiled. They do whatever they want to do. Discipline is a key ingredient. That's another thing that's politically incorrect in the world today. And if you do that, you might be taken to jail. <laughs> but anyway, Paul brings forth here Paul says he had already judged him. There's no question in his mind this is sinful. He recognizes the need. He didn't have a committee on it, he already knew. He didn't have a church vote here, or they raised their hands. He didn't have to be talking about it. The sin was so blatant that everybody knew. It was obvious, no doubt. It, it, it had to be dealt with. There was no discussion, no politics involved. How many people will we lose, though, if we do this? You might, might lose them all. Might lose everybody. But what does God's Word say? You might, you might lose half of them. But what does God's Word say? I know. But we'll offend well, Who will we offend when we do this? I know. It had to be dealt with. And that's it. So we went through a Matthew 18. Jesus showed that. Paul says it. Paul says it pretty uh, graphically. Um, but by the Holy Spirit. Let's read that. Like I got to say, this, this is really... This is hard. This is hard stuff. It is for me. What does Paul say in verse 5? My, if you told this to the world out there, they would, they would put this on the news. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Whew. Deliver him to Satan? You've got to be kidding me. That doesn't sound right. Paul, um, I think you're wrong here. Jesus did the same thing with Peter. Uh, Get thee behind me. Satan had been inspiring. What did he call him? Even Satan. Satan's working through Peter so much. Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat. But, when it's all done, I will show who you really are. I'll wish you, your faith will be uh, manifested. The true faith. And you'll be shining when you get rid of that dross. So, God uses a lot of ingredients and here he's talking about using Satan even. Even our enemy. And that is overwhelming because you wouldn't think God would do that. He does things differently than humans would do, doesn't he? All Satan is is a tool. God could take him out in a moment. He's nothing compared to God. He is a created being. Higher than us right now. Someday, no. Very powerful. But God uses him. He is a pawn. Handing over for punishment. That's the idea of delivering one to Satan. Handing over for punishment. Who's the ruler of this world? Well, God is ultimately, we know that, He's sovereign. But He has allowed Satan to be the what? The prince of this world. The ruler of this world comes now, Jesus says. So He turns a believer over to Satan. What did God do to Job? He actually let Job be stripped by Satan of almost everything, even through his help. But what happens at the end of the book? God's plan is seen in a sovereign way, in a providential way. God is glorified even more. And then as a result of it, you even see a good thing that happens as far as the physical realms are. Job was double-blessed, wasn't he? So things go much further than our little finite minds are. He left Satan... Rule this world in a sense, and he has ones who have committed high treason against the Lord in the church, and he hands them all them, him over and gets them out of protection and the care that the church has. Did you know that you are in a realm of protection in the body of Christ? We are prayed for by others. We have others encourage us. Even this morning, do you feel a sense of encouragement by everybody here? You are being protected by God, but He uses the church to do that too. And we get to see that happening. But when a man is turned over to Satan, his rights are forfeited. I'm not saying he loses his salvation. But I am saying now he is no longer under the protection. He's out there in that scary realm. Look in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20. This is not an isolated passage that we deal with. And it sounds very scary, doesn't it? Paul tells Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. He tells about a couple of guys that suffered shipwreck in verse 19 and then verse 20 names them of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, whom I handed over for punishment, that they may not learn not to blaspheme. They were blaspheming. The Lord turned them over to Satan. Did you guys ever see that one before? First Corinthians 11, verse 30. Talking about examining yourself as uh, take communion and such, be judging yourselves. Verse 30 says, "For this reason, as they took uh, unworthy communion, for this reason many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep." So that means they uh, they just started uh, sleeping, and uh, <laughs> means they they were taken out, they, they were killed. The Lord took them out because of that. A lot of times people are taken out we don't even know why. And I would never be the one, well, they were sinning and God just took them out. I would never say that. Because if that be the case, He could take us all out. We can compartmentalize sin. But there there are sins that have consequences worse than others. And that's the kind of sins we're talking about this morning. Uh, We have our inward sins and we might even have acts of sin that... Uh, need to be corrected and it's not necessarily to be done by others. I, we know that. If we did that, we'd be on each other all the time. And we wouldn't even be here we'd be so sinful, right? We're not talking about those kind of sins. It's sins that are heinous, are making a bad witness upon the church. Of course, he's using an example on this. So there's no doubt about something like this. Um, in Acts chapter 5, You get uh, an example of a husband and wife, Ananias and Sapphira, and uh, they lied to the Holy Spirit. What did God do with them? He killed them both. That's New Testament. That's not Old Testament. That's the God that we worship. And humanly, that sounds like something that just doesn't ring right with us. What? He took them out for just lying? Yeah because it was going to infect that early church at the time. How many times has that happened today? I bet it still goes on. We don't know, and we're not to judge. We don't worry about it. But what about that destruction of the flesh that we find here in 1 Corinthians 5? The destruction of the flesh. Turn it over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. The spirit might be saved. There would be destruction of the flesh in that the incestuous man... Would eventually die unless he repented of the sin that he'd be that Satan would just go ahead and take him out if he does not repent. That's how serious it is. The body would be on the way to destruction in a special way of discipline that had been done. I think the thought here is for the man's own good. You're to put him out of the church, allow him to be put into the realm where in sphere where he's outside the church's protection, outside the church's prayers. Satan rules there. And that Satan may bring him down so far that the desires of the flesh that he had, he will no longer even want to even think about anymore. Right? You would recognize that this is horrible. I repent of this. I don't ever want to do this again. And so he comes back repentant restored to the church, and everything is wonderful. It's a beautiful thing when somebody's restored. Unfortunately, because of the cafeteria style of churches that we have, one gets disciplined and he goes to the next church. And without any question at all, the church accepts him, brings him in, and says, it must be that church over there maybe they need to inquire and go to the pastor or people there and find out what happened. Because I can guarantee you that person that goes there is going to say, that church over there is a hating church they don't love, but he's not going to tell the truth. He's just going to say, here's what about them over there. And if he gets kicked out of that church, he goes to the next church, if he may. See, if if the churches would work together on this like Scripture says then they wouldn't have an option of going somewhere else and finding out. I would want to know where somebody came from. In this church, if somebody came in here, I would want to know, okay, you're moving from a different church. As much as I would want them, I would like to know why they left that church. And if I know it's a church that doesn't preach the gospel, and they say they're here because they want to hear the word... I don't really have to delve into it. There's no use because I already know that maybe that church is not Scripture. You know, you don't know. There, there are different uh, things that can happen. I uh, have to take each instance separately. But a lot of people just move on from one to the next to the next to the next. They just hop and move around. And that is never good. That never works out. And that's what a lot of people do. I, I would, If somebody was at a biblical church and they're moving just because... They didn't like somebody. You know what? I would like to tell them, you know what? You need to go back to that church and make it right with that person because Matthew 18 says to go to that person and if there's sin there, let it be addressed. That's the way that that Jesus said it. Why don't people pay attention to that? Well, do you think many people preach on Matthew 18? If you're preaching topically, you think you're going to go to that passage? Do you think you're going to go to 1 Corinthians 5 and preach that? No. Most Reformed churches that are biblical, they do practice this because it's biblical. So, it, uh, you know, we're not alone in believing this, believe me, but uh, there's not as many doing it. So when we're gathered together in His name, look at this in verse 4. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that sounds just like what Jesus said wherever two or three are you to gathered in uh, His presence. When you are gathered together along with Spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. His power is there among you. He says whatever action you take, Jesus will be in agreement with. He says, "I agree with what you're doing." Paul is saying that, and I want to deliver one as to Satan. Jesus is in agreement with that. Uh, Paul is putting his stamp on it right here. Jesus puts a stamp on it, and uh, they're delivering this one to Satan. That uh, Satan uh, is going to be an instrument that God will use. And the whole reason for all this is found in Second Corinthians, chapter two, verse five. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. We walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim. Quite. That is not the one I wanted. I am so. Isn't that a great verse? I hate to stop in the middle of that. I don't know why I did that. I think I do. It's chapter 2, verse (laughs) 5. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent, not to be too severe, this punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to Him. For to this end, I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Now, whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we're not ignorant of his devices. Because it goes on too long. That that person does not repent. You don't bring them in. But they repent. They repent. Bring them back in. Forgive them. Uh, Do you forgive without repentance? No. And that's the question that I have asked people down through the years when this has been practiced. It's not been much, but when it has, and whenever they've been approached by me or somebody else, and they uh, are not willing and ready to uh, ask forgiveness, to repent of the sin, we can't bring them in. But if they are, then it doesn't matter what you think of them. What do you do? You bring them in. Uh, Galatians chapter 6 talks about that. Just before Ephesians. Galatians 6 verse 1. So here's the balance of it all. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, if he's doing some kind of sin here that's really bad, you who are spiritual, you who are leaders, no, Who is is a spiritual person? One who's filled with the Spirit. One who's filled with the Word of God. It's any member of the church. You who are spiritual. Restore such a one in spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So if you can make peace with them, and uh, you, you deal with the spirit of gentleness, and... They desire to get things right. Then there's the whole motive being fulfilled. There's the whole process of how it works. Restore. Now we do the exhortation to purity, and that's verses six through eight in chapter five. Your glory is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So here's, here's the deal. This exhortation is that there would be purity. Leaven, he says, uh, don't you know that a little leaven, leavens the whole world. You're glorying in this. You're puffed up in all of this and you're prideful about all the different things. Don't you know? Here's how sinful it is. You take leaven. Not always does it mean something bad. Sometimes it can be good. But many times in Scripture, it's representing something bad. Uh, It refers to evil. Now, if you go to Mark 8.15, Jesus charged them saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod their whole way of living, teaching, what their thoughts are. He says, beware of that. Now, that would be evil, wouldn't it? So it's logical. If you bring in a little leaven in this context here, and you put it in the dough, it's going to fill the whole loaf of bread, right? A good example that he he uses here. And if you bring a little bit of sin into the assembly and you allow that sin to grow, it's logical that it's going to filter right on through and affect people in the church, right? People will say, well, if they can get away with it, then I can get away with it. It's growing. It's abounding. So he says, purge it, as he says in verse 7. Purge out. This, the word is ek katharo. You ever heard of a catharsis? Some of you have probably heard of that word. It means to clean out. A cathartic, a cleaning, a purifying. And the word ek is like exit, out. To clean out that sin. Paul is using the analogy of the Old Testament. Found in Exodus. Ah, you guys remember this book? Not too long ago, we were in this book, weren't we? So we we return back there and we remember as the people were going to be led out of Egypt as they had been in bondage, the night before, Jesus instructed them about unleavened bread. They were to have a feast of unleavened bread. Um, Chapter 13, verse 3 says this, And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. For by strength of hand, the Lord brought you out of this place. And then he says this line here. No leavened bread shall be eaten. That's what they always ate. And then he says, for like a week, I don't want you to eat any leavened bread. If you drop down to verse 7, he says, unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days. And no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you in all your quarters. Every place you look gets to be purified. Now, he's saying, I want you to remove everything of life out of you. Whatever that you see to be sin, purge it. Take it out. And that's an individual thing. You know, it starts with ourselves. He's saying, well, there's sin in the church. You want to take that out. But I think if we all were doing this, then there would never be any need for church discipline, would it? Any sin that's there. Um, and then he says, and, and I'll go on further with that in a moment about that, that cleaning and purifying. Um, he says, therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Since you truly are unleavened, You are now 11 You've been cleaned out. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. So now he takes it all the way back to Exodus and says, Christ our Passover. So now here's where the Passover comes in the fulfillment of it. We live in a Passover time in the sense that Christ is our Passover. He has been the Lamb that takes away the sin. So we turn back to Exodus chapter 12. It's the chapter before the 13, right? And look in verse 15, and you'll remember this. Seven days you shall eat. Unleavened bread. On the first day, you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. I think that is something to listen to. If you don't do this, you're going to be out. You're going to be outside the protection and cover of the Israel. You won't. You won't be able to be worshiping. On the first day, there should be a holy convocation. And on the seventh day, there should be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work should be done on them, but that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. So you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this day, I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. You'll continue on to do this. Our Passover was sacrificed for us not those little lambs anymore. It's the Lamb of God. He's talking about Exodus here. And what Paul is saying in this beautiful illustration is that the church of Jesus Christ today is our household. We, we live in Christ. He lives in us. What the Jews did on the night before the Passover, they were to go to the place where leaven was kept. And they were to scrub it clean Of all leaven. You weren't to have one little granule of leaven there. Nothing whatsoever. And we've taught the Passover many times. And that would be the first part of the Passover. We'd talk about the cleaning of it. And uh, so, you know, they'd go to the kneading trough where the dough was all kneaded. And they were to scrub it and sweep it and scrape every last bit of leaven there. The no leaven on, on the, on the, in the cupboard. They were to light a candle and go into every corner and crevice of that household and to see if there was any kind of leaven crumbs there and get it out. Make sure that there is no leaven left. That's all a picture. It sounds awful tedious, doesn't it? But it's pointing to what Jesus Christ did. He took all of it away, didn't He? It's all finished. It's been done we live in that so therefore we want to have our lives represent that too. And what the people would do after this was all done they'd go before the face of God and they'd lift their hands toward the eyes of heaven and they'd say this. This is part of their prayer. Oh God, I have cast out all leaven from my house and if there's any leaven that I do not know of with all my heart I cast it out. Now that's their prayer. Now, where the blood, the very blood of the Lamb was there was not to be any iota of leaven in that household. And, of course, that's what Christ did for us. What a picture of what happened with our sin. Cast away as far as the east is from the west. Give a little bit of gospel here, don't we? Even inside this message of discipline, we get a really good motive of how this really works. This is how serious sin is to God. He's already taken care of it. His son had to die being a lamb to do that. So it's talking about the Feast of Christ and the ongoing, everyday walk of the Christian. We live in the Feast of Passover. Christ is our Passover. We're not to eat with the old leaven of malice and wickedness sitting around the table of the lord and knowing that we have daggers that could go into other people in the same room that's not to happen that is to be disciplined that's to be disciplined all forms of wickedness that just wreck assemblies do you see how the enemy works do you see how the flesh works do you see how the world works in all of us still today So this is a message for all of us, even though I don't know of any kind of sin that's hanging out there that we have to practice discipline in. Thank the Lord. But at the same time, if we all would take care of that, like they did at the Passover, there would never be any need for church discipline, would there? Purity. Purity. He wants purity. The unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Removing the impurities that contaminate, that corrupt, that uh, bring on this disease. And that's the assembly or the church that God will use that's pure. Now, the last section is from 9 through 13. He says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler, or a drunkard or an executioner, not to even eat with such a person. For what I have to do with judging those who are outside. Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves that evil person. And he wraps it up again there. He's talking about disassociation. This is all part of the process of discipline. Not to keep close company with. Believers are not to do that who persistently practice these serious uh, sins, these uh, offenses. And if they don't listen to the counsel of one and then two uh, or three others and then the whole church, they're going to be put out of the fellowship and you're not to even eat with them. Don't associate with them. Don't. Just draw the line. There's no exceptions. Uh, If we were to look into uh, uh, 5.11, we see that. Not to keep company with anyone named a brother. You go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And in verse 6. 15. When we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but work with labor and toil and night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busy bodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. So, he's uh, saying don't even eat with. Um, I think he's saying if there's one drop of foul water it can contaminate a whole reservoir of the pure water and it's not that that individual is going to lose his salvation because if he really is a true believer god will keep him god might take him out physically but spiritually he is still uh he's still a christian uh, the the pain here is to drive the sinner to repentance that's that's the whole idea What the church did was stop fellowshipping with the unbelievers. That's what Corinth did. They went out and said, oh, okay, we're not going to associate with all these people who are wicked out here. They're unbelievers and they're sexually immoral and they're covetous and they're extortioners and idolaters. We're not even going to be seen around them and we're going to totally remove ourselves over here in the corner because we're not going to associate with the world. Well, if that be the case, then we all have to get out of the world because that's impossible, isn't it? He's not saying disassociate with those because how else would we be able to give them the truth? Now, he's not saying, hey, go out and sin with them or get yourself in a situation that would make, make you uh, have a, a thought of sinning. But if we are there with them as a motive to be able to bring truth to them, to give them uh, truth, that, that's what it is. It's not a sin to hang with an unbeliever, especially if your motive is to bring them to Christ. If you'll get that opportunity and you won't always get that opportunity this time or the next time or the next time but pray that you would get the opportunity. And if it does come, then by all means use it in the correct time and and the Lord leading. Um, So Paul didn't mean for them to get away from the world, uh, have to leave the planet. Sin outside the church is not nearly as dangerous as sin in the church. And it's a good witness to the world. Especially if we have such a love that we operate the way that it should be. Je- uh, Jesus prayed um, something like this in John 17, verse 15, in that great prayer for us. What an intercessory prayer. Verse 15, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, He's saying to the Father, but that you should keep them from the evil one. You're, they're still going to be in the world, right? Um Verse 18, As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Why are we sent into the world? To get the gospel. That's a big reason why we do what we do. Matthew 5, 13-16. A little bit of evangelistic encouragement here. You are the salt of the earth. You guys, us, we are the salt of the earth, whole body of Christ. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. It's it's not of any worth. You are the light of the world, or the salt, or the light. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Let your light be turned on. Let your life be a witness. And, who knows, you might get the opportunity to even speak it out and to use that mouth. And that's even greater. So-called brother is called this back to First Corinthians chapter 5 as we finish up here. He's called a so called brother. Did you notice that? Verse 11 But now I have written to you to keep company with, not to keep company with anyone named a brother. If a person professes to be a brother and sister in Christ, and sometimes you may not even know, you might even have your doubts about them. And if you have that, you still have to go upon what they're saying. Now, if they have a lifestyle that does not reminisce Christianity and they've not really trusted in Christ as sacrifice, well, then you know. But sometimes we don't know. There's the wheat and the tares. And if somebody is uh, acting like an unbeliever so much, we might start to believe they're an unbeliever. But he says, don't associate with the one named a brother. I'm not talking about the unbelievers here, but the one that looks like that. It's really hard to distinguish. Tares must be treated like they are wheat. They say they're believers. Okay, treat them like that. They have terrible sins. Flesh is very present in all of us. We know that. We battle, we struggle with sin all the time. People can look like unbelievers. We can look like unbelievers. But truly be believers. And not excusing sin. We see how serious sin is by this text here today. But believers can act like unbelievers who are outside the kingdom. They can look just like them. Withdraw from them, from that particular brother. But who He says to judge are the ones on the inside. We know that there are already unbelievers out there, and we know that they have all sorts of sin. And some of the worst kind of sin. The unbeliever. We shouldn't be surprised. They're going to do what is their inclinations. That's what they do. They do that best. They're not converted. Don't expect them to be like a Christian. They will never be that way unless they have been changed by God. So don't ever be surprised what an unbeliever does. No matter how wicked and terrible it is, realize that they're only doing what their nature does. Remember the depravity of man? We are to be a witness to the unbeliever, though. We're not to judge them. We have to judge in the sense, okay, I'm making a decision here. I'm discerning that guy's not a believer. He doesn't even say that he is. So I know he's not a believer. Um, I don't have to worry about the chastening on them. God's going to do that. All I have to do is use the truth. Look in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. For the time has come for judgment to begin. Where? At the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God, who are not believers, right? Where does it start? In the church in the body. Deuteronomy seventeen seven relates to that. We have to remind ourselves that everyone falls into sin. We we all fall short. The church is a hospital. We're a hospital for the sick. We're all sick. We were dead one time. He changed us, but we still sin, don't we we, we have a need we, ne- we have a need for God's grace. Have you guys experienced God's grace this morning? Amen. Have you experienced God's mercy? Have you experienced this? Well, I hope so. This is a hard message. And it may not be anything that we can use right now, and I hope not, and hope we don't ever have to use it. But if, if it be done, we see that it, it honors God. We don't discipline everybody for little things. Like I said, we'd all be kicked out. But the obedient sinner, who is a believer, who now becomes obedient, he recognizes his sin. And he hungers and he thirsts for righteousness. He confesses it and somebody doesn't have to mention it. Isn't that the way it really is supposed to work? If we're all looking at ourselves and our own sin, you don't have to go picking up the covers of other people because you will find sin on people. And you can find, you don't have to look too hard. you don't have to look too hard for me. You don't know how I am in the in the kitchen or in my front room as uh I think uh who did I hear that oh, Francis Chan maybe is quoting maybe Piper or something That's uh, that Piper conference they're having this weekend. By the way, while I'm thinking about good advertising, you go on the internet, some of those are already up. Uh, all day yesterday is up, and they'll probably have Piper's address uh, that closes out today. That'll be up. And they'll eventually have videos for those, but they do have the audios, and you can read their notes there with it, too. So you go on to desiringgod.org and go on there and uh, get a treat. Be fed. and it's fantastic stuff. But the thing is, you know, we all sin where people never see it. We have it right here, it never gets out of our mouth. Sometimes it gets out of our mouth. So we say things and we might even take some actions that other people see that nobody else in the church sees. We we battle with this, don't we? We know that. But we want to repent. And that's what it is. Repenting and confessing. Uh, when somebody is warned and they persist in it, they don't see it as sin, it has to be dealt with. They're to be prayed for. And that they would make it right to live a pure life. You know what an obedient church does? It glorifies our great God. It it keeps itself pure. And it acts upon the very Word of God that says right here, that's so clear. Why aren't people doing that? Why aren't people really starting with their own selves? Let's pray.